You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. In the episode, I give a lecture on the 2008 Mumbai attacks, which if you don't know, is a major attack that happened in Mumbai, India, when 10 Pakistani-based terrorists simultaneously attacked five different sites across the city and just brought havoc and destruction to the city for almost three days. In 2019, I had the honor to visit Mumbai with the Modern War Institute, a group of researchers and some cadets, and walked the ground of the Mumbai attacks, even staying in one of the main hotels. In the lecture you're about to listen to, which I gave originally at the NATO Science and Technology Office Basics of Complex Modern Urban Functions and Characteristics course on December 15, 2021, I give the details of the city as the city was very unique as a mega city when something this large happened on the ground. And I also give the details of the terrorist attacks, how they planned for it, who was involved, what sites they hit. Uh, and then a little bit about the response and the urban warfare lessons that I think can be taken from this very unique event. Well, enjoy the show. I'll be talking today about the 2008 Mumbai attacks, which was an attack on November 26th of 2008 by 10 Pakistani-backed terrorists on the megacity of Mumbai. It has many names. The Indians call it 2611 because of how impactful it was to their entire nation. The Indian 911 is another term for it. It's also become synonymous after this within law enforcement communities, within the military of the hashtag Mumbai style attack. As rightfully so, many countries around the world asked themselves, could a Mumbai style attack happened in their cities? I had the great honor to visit in August of 2018, walk the ground of each one of the sites and do interviews. It's an amazing opportunity, but I'm going to give you a little bit about the attack, hopefully focusing in on some unique aspects I felt were missed, uh, especially about understanding the city, how the city played into the actual terrorist attack. And of course, it's always about what the terrorists are doing, but also how they use the city as a system in the city. And this is the mega city attack. So I usually like to put this slide up just to show along the spectrum of military operation, where does the Mumbai attack fall, right? It falls in this counter-terrorist, terrorist operations in urban areas along that spectrum. Mumbai is a little different than some terrorist attacks, especially even the ones we've seen recently. This, And I'll talk about this. This is a, a very highly organized terrorist attack by another country. So it's proxy warfare, Pakistan trained and funded and sent the terrorists into Mumbai, India. So not to assault anybody's intelligence, I didn't really know exactly where Mumbai was in the world until you visit. So if you don't know, Mumbai sits on the western coast of India. It's a coastal city, but it's like we know from most coastal cities. It's also surrounded by water. So it's an, actually an island formed by the Arabian Sea and a giant waterway that runs through that section. It's one of the 33 megacities of the world, So, but it's also, I think more importantly, the fourth populous city in the world and the most populous in India. 
It's also of significance, like most major cities of countries are, has many, many more levels of importance than just the fact that it's really big and has a lot of people. So Mumbai is the financial, the commercial, and the entertainment capital of India, entertainment, Bollywood, based out of India. In 2008, the estimated population, which I will get to on how hard that is to estimate the population is, but it was around 17 million. So clearly past the 10 million megacity mark, which to some people gets important. So like m most major cities, it's really hard to draw a line of what constitutes the city before it connects to other cities or connects to megalopolises and things like that. The M Mumbai city itself, 233 square miles, and then it stretches out to the greater metropolitan area, 1,600 square miles. I was in Los Angeles uh, actually talking to the NATO SEP, the Special Environments Panel. So I, I gave them a comparison to Los Angeles, just to give you the people the awareness of how different megacities can be and how density and, can change and across different cities around the world. Since LA, as most people know, is a very flat, open city uh, with not a lot of density. Uh, that's not the case in Mumbai, of course. The density, uh, of the city itself is 73,000 residents per square mile. Now, Los Angeles is 78. And if you talk New York City, if you talk Manhattan, uh, you get a lot higher, closer densities. But I mean, extremely dense populated city. And then the city itself is divided into really four main segments. Uh, South Mumbai, which is that very tip of the boot, really, that sticks out into the Arabian Sea, is where the commercial center is, where the financial center is, where most of the uh, historical things are. You know, the, the gateway of India is there. Uh, most of the history is there. And then right above that, where it says Mumbai suburbs or suburban area, suburban Mumbai is really where most people live in, in Mumbai, and they commute into that South Mumbai for much of the work. And as cities grow, of course, Mumbai has greatly expanded beyond its original borders. And especially in the, actually in the last 20 years, as you see on the Eastern side, across the, the Thang Creek, the Navi Mumbai and New Bombay have exploded, but they constitute the overall Mumbai city. So I talked about how most people live in suburb Mumbai and they travel in every morning into actual South Mumbai to where most of everything that is outside of residential, it, where it is. An estimated 7.5 million commuters commute in every day. It's actually insane. And I tried not to get too, I don't like crowds. So I tried when I visited not to try to get too much into it. But what's crazy about the infrastructure, there's only three railway networks making the railroads in Mumbai, specifically the busiest urban railroad system in the world. If you've ever seen pictures of these trains coming in with thousands of people inside of them and hanging on the outside of it, that's the daily commute into Mumbai on three railway stations into really just a few major railroad stations, the Grand Central kind of stations. So I know we all say we experienced the worst traffic in the world, whether you live in DC, Los Angeles, London, you, you name it. But so real studies of the commuter time and transportation networks and congestion found that Mumbai is the worst in the world. And, and I just got a small taste of that as a security force or as a, a study of transportation it just means you're not going anywhere anytime quickly. And there are actually no other forms 
of really transportation, it's pretty crazy to observe. So this is an example. This isn't like some mad event that happened. That's an everyday occurrence of people waiting to get on the train station in the CST, which is basically the Grand Central Station of Mumbai, uh, C CST terminal. So if anybody's ever heard of Mike Davis's book, The Planet of Slums, a big part of that is India. So in Mumbai itself, there is extreme social inequality in massive slums. So the extreme social inequality is home to the richest corporations, people, and homes. And I'm not even exaggerating that. So that picture is the outskirts of Mumbai. That's actually the, the Davari slum that I've I toured within a mile of that slum, which has over a million people in it, is the richest home in the world, multi-billion dollar home where the richest person in Asia lives. Uh, that's the, the severe social inequality that is Mumbai. So an estimated 41% of the city's population, so that 17 million, live in slum. So that's 9 million people in the city live in a slum. And the slums are, are cities unto themselves. I got, you can actually schedule a tour of some of these slums. And I did that for Davari. You know, Davari is famous from the movie Slumdog Millionaire. But our group scheduled a tour and the tour is meant to show you that, you know, it's not all bad. There's commerce there. They recycle the world's trash inside Davari and, and, and push it back out. It didn't, it didn't give me a better feeling of what's, what's going on in there. These slums are undocumented non-populations of basically illegal squatters. You know, there's major controversies in, in India and Mumbai specifically about basically bulldozing uh, slums down to get access back to that land as in most megacities, land is, is a very high value. So they're very limited to no government services inside the slums, which most people know is part of the definition. There is some, actually, there's some they try to build a, a government building and force people to live in it so that way they can knock down the smaller you know one-story slum buildings but there is some uh, security services in inside of there but they're not associated to the larger city kind of services if that makes sense and then the other aspect is like we said this is an island and most of your slums in mumbai are around the city in these giant fishing communities which i have another picture of Dervari is, is almost a, a workers settlement where they they go back they work in the city, uh, come back to their homes, or they're non-residents from other parts of India that travel to Davari to work in that recycle business of like scraping paint cans to get excess paint out of them. And they work in there, but th there's these massive also fishing communities. So studying Mumbai's security network is complex, but just like any major, especially mega city or me metropolitan urban area, it's got every level of security forces from the national, basically, you know, the FBI type of organizations, the research and analysis wing and intelligence bureau are, are based in Mumbai. And then within the, the actual state that Mumbai falls under, there's a state police and state headquarters, again, headquartered in Mumbai. The city itself, of course, has its own security apparatus, you know, similar to Los Angeles. You know, we have Los Angeles County, you have Los Angeles City proper. The Mumbai police has almost every type of organization you would see in a Western police organization. They do have a very robust anti-terrorist squad, or they call it squad, but it's a department that was started in 1993 after some major terrorist attacks. And they have quick reaction forces, SWAT type forces. There are also other organizations based in Mumbai, like the Marcos or the Marine Commandos. There's an army headquarters. There is no shortage of security forces in Mumbai. The littoral zone, if we study littoral security, comes into play because this attack was a seaborne insertion attack. The Marine police or 
Mumbai police with a Marine or beach patrol covers the shore out to 12 nautical miles. And then after that, you have the Indian Coast Guard with responsibility of 12 to 200 nautical miles. And once you got into blue water, you, you had the responsibility for Indian Navy. And then because of that extreme social inequality, there's also a very robust, which is part of any system within the security of a mega city, the private security organizations, right? So, you know, that richest person in all of Asia that lives in Mumbai has basically an army stationed at that house in most of the hotels, financial institutions, you name it, have some type of private security force, which is a major part of the layered security of any urban area. So the picture that I grabbed there is actually from July of 2008. To me, it says a bunch of things. One, it's basically uh, regular Mumbai police searching residents' bags for bombs. So Mumbai ha had experienced bombings in the past. And actually in Bangalore, uh, a city in the central area of India, there had been some recent bomb attacks in July. So the Mumbai police were on heightened alert for bombs, people carrying bombs. And like I said, there's a history of bombings as terrorist attacks through bombings in Mumbai. But what also I like this picture of is, is to point out that, you know, the Mumbai police system is a British colonial system and they carried many of those traditions on. A regular beat cop in Mumbai doesn't carry a gun. He has a radio and a bully stick. And we discussed that a lot while we were there. Uh, and it comes to play in the actual terrorist attack of even if you have the right guy there, if he doesn't have the right tools to respond to violence, then violence will happen. So breaking down the attack, pre-attack. So the person on the left is a guy named David Coleman Hadley. He actually is a Pakistani-American, has a different name. He changed his name just to be able to enter India with less attention, having an American name and American passport. He was the reconnaissance asset for the attack. So all I pin on the report, two years in advance, one year in advance, David Hadley is going in and out of Mumbai, reconning every attack site, reconning the insertion points, sending GPS grids, taking photos, staying in the hotels with his wife, many wives, but the wife that he has in India, and feeding all that back to the terrorist organization, lashkar e taiba within Pakistan that is organizing the attack, which afterwards we know that it was a Pakistani intelligence service actually organized raid or a terrorist attack with assumingly Pakistani government backing. So the actual intelligence gathering before this attack was pretty rich. So there's been a report that basically the 9-11 commission report happened afterwards. I have that as one of the suggested readings, basically the 9-11, their 26-11 commission report, basically, where they investigated what had happened. And there's intelligence before the attack was very rich. The ATS or the anti-terrorism squad had received multiple intelligence reports of attacks going to happen at every location that was hit almost. So both hotels, the Leopold Cafe, they had reports that a possible sea insertion, and they were not sitting on that information. They actively actually went out to each one of these sites that ended up being attacked on November 26th and said, hey, intelligence reports that you could be attacked, commando-style attack, you need to do more. And then it gets you to that private-public relationship that there is, it's infrastructure decisions even within the public sector, but in the private sector, you can't force them to, to make certain security changes. And that's what a couple guys were trying to do, whether that fell on deaf ears. Some of this was just the unimaginable, but there was no shortage of intelligence that the attack was going to happen. And then, like I said, the expectation was a bombing. So 
everybody was on high alert because Mumbai had been attacked in 1993, 2006, the, the bombings I told you about in 2008, which was especially along the train systems, the bombings. And the, if I didn't mention it, the, the train system themselves have their own wing that railway police securing those three very vulnerable train sites. So on the right are the 10 Lashkari Tabla terrorists that attacked Mumbai. Like I said, it was 10 terrorists and they were all supposed to die. And that's why at the bottom right, I say that's the mistake. And that's how a lot of what we know about the attack was because that one terrorist did not die like he was supposed to. But they were sent in their ages 20 to 28 poor Pakistani men that were given to Lashkari Tabla to be martyrs, to make some great attack. They didn't know what they were going to do beforehand, of course. And then they were trained in Pakistan on small weapons handling, on a lot of the tactics that they used. They were even trained by basically versions of the Navy SEALs on how to do a couple aspects of the sea insertion that they would execute during the attack. So I broke this down by phases, just the amount of detail that went into the attack. So I went try to do that in how I sequenced retelling of the attack. So phase one was a seaborne insertion. So we know around November 22nd that the 10 terrorists boarded a Pakistani frigate and left Karachi. And midway through that traveling from Karachi to Mumbai, they captured and did a sea-to-sea boarding of an Indian fishing trawler. And that's the trawler there to the left, the actual photo of the boat that they boarded, which talking to people is no easy task and amount of training you have to do to navigate that 200 plus nautical miles, but also to do a sea-to-sea boarding of a, another vessel and taking it by force. The terrorists killed everybody on the boat, slit the throat, threw them overboard, except the captain. And they made, they continued their way towards Mumbai. At this point is where I point out that the, so those 10 terrorists, I call them privates. Maybe they received like an, a year of training, if that, in the things that they would be required to do. To me, they're basically privates, but they were remotely controlled from Pakistan by very professional military organizations through satellite, encrypted satellite communication, which the Indians actually did intercept really early in the attack, about an hour plus after the attack. But each one of the terrorists had an earpiece uh, in their ear with somebody talking to them through every aspect of the operation. So I, I call it basically remote control humans because there's no way 10 privates could pull this t- attack off no matter how well planned, but they had somebody in their ear giving them instructions, reminding them what they were supposed to do, demanding that they do certain things, giving them encouragement when they needed it, promising them that their families would be paid for their martyrs, all those things. So they continue on the fishing trawler until estimated around 2000 on the 26th of November. They are basically outside of Mumbai, and then they board two Zodiacs that they brought with them and split into two groups and two Zodiacs at night using GPS and hit two different landing spots. And those are the two stars I have there, one on the east side and one on the west side of the tip of the Buddha Mumbai in that south Mumbai that I was talking about and hit the exact landing and locations that they want. You have to be impressed by that. So this is where you see the use of the city as a social organization and the flows of the city against itself. So the top left is one of the fishing slums that I told you about the fishing slums that they came into. And then the bottom right is the other one. The, one of the reasons that we know that they wanted to come into fishing slums, right? The slums are not a part of the city. They're not going to be calling the Mumbai police if they see something suspicious. And in the 
other aspect of the nature of the pattern and the rhythm of the city, at the time that they hit, there was a major cricket game happening between India and England. That meant, and I didn't know this, but it makes sense that every person that had a TV, doesn't matter if you live in a slum or not, would be watching that game. And we saw that be a major aspect of their ability to get into their um, attack sites. And they also went through a very robust camouflage and deception operation. So the top right is one of the Zodiacs that they use. They were supposed to cut it and sink it, but right, privates don't always do what they're told. They get yelled at over the radio later for not doing it, but that's one of the Zodiacs they use. If you notice, they painted it yellow. And it, the reason they did that, if you look at the bottom right, the, all the, the fishing boats of the fishing slums are very colorful. And I took that photo when we were visiting. Their camouflage did not just deal with the vehicles or the boats they took in. Each one of the terrorists were, had shortcut hair, dressed in Western clothes. They had even the, if you can see that red uh, wristband that, that terrorist on the right is wearing is, is a Hindu wristband that's sold in Mumbai. It's a very touristy thing to get. The amount of detail they went into camouflaging themselves to look like backpackers. They'll split up after they land and don backpacks, don baseball caps, all Western style stuff to look like the classic European Western backpacker that's just there for travel. But what was on their backs, I call them back, backpacks from hell. Each one of the 10 terrorists had a backpack full of an AK-47, about 20 magazines, pistols, grenades, light food, like nuts and fruits to sustain themselves, and then rumored drugs to keep themselves going because they planned to basically survive the attacks as long as they could and create as much international media attention on the attacks. So phase two is, was basically distributed movement to the objectives, all the individual objectives that they had. So they, those two stars, again, two landing spots and the terrorists split up in the four groups. So three teams of two and one team of four, and they moved to five targets. The five main targets were as a Leopold Cafe, an internationally well-known terrorist little cafe, the CST train terminal uh, up in the northern sector, which is basically the Grand Central Station of Mumbai, a Nehrman house, which is a, a Jewish outreach center where if you're traveling Jewish and you want to visit, you'd stay at that community center. And then two five-star hotels, the Oberoi Trident Hotel, which is actually two hotels connected by a hallway. And then the Taj Mahal Hotel, which is that iconic photo of that was at the front of presentation. And those are the five targets they're going to move to in those four different groups. So they either walk or they call taxis, hail taxis to get to those locations. And within the taxis, if they took a taxi or if they were walking, they either put IEDs in the taxis under the seat, which is training, part of the training they received on a set timer to go off after they basically gotten off. And then there were a couple other IEDs that were just dropped along certain spots of their path to their objective or fleeing an objective. So phase three is the attack. So the first attack, the first bullets fired was basically the Leopold Cafe. And that's the photo of the cafe on the left, visited it. It's on a very well-trafficked street, but it's, it's an internationally, I guess, known cafe. Two terrorists arrive around 2130 on the 26th of November. We talked to the owners who, again, were on high alert of the possibility of a terrorist attack through bombing, especially through a, a backpack, a bomb in a backpack. So they had set up added security measures of having a guy at the front door searching backpacks. And the owner said that he was watching as... Two tourists walked up to the front of the store, off to the left, they, they stopped. They looked like they were on the phone with somebody. Uh, and then they pulled out AK-47s and started 
basically shooting. And the attack on the cafe itself lasted only about two minutes and 10 people were killed in those two minutes. And then the two terrorists moved through the small cafe. I mean, it's really just one large room and exit out the back door, headed to the Taj Mahal and they drop an ID right by that door in the alleyway making their way to the Taj Mahal. So the second site is the CST train station, picture of it at the bottom left, uh, 21.30, two terrorists arrive at the CST and then they go into the bathroom, pull out their AK-47s and come out and launch their attack. I actually wondered why 21.30, if you're trying to get the most casualties as possible at a train station, just with my own Western ideals of what rush hour was. So we went and visited the train station at exactly 21.30, 22.00, and it is basically there rush hour. It was slammed packed as it is on the bottom left. And this is where the most number of people logically were killed. It's a very open train station, so the two terrorists were just spraying. Uh, so 58 is the number of killed. I don't have the number of people actually wounded. But their attack only lasts 90 minutes, and I'll talk about what they do after that attack. The third attack site is the Nariman House. So two terrorists that walked from their insertion point over to the Nariman or Chabad House. It's a five-story Jewish outreach building. It's, it's ironically, as I walked through Mumbai, the only one that felt dense. I had some image of density in my head of a mega city, probably from my time in New York City, where these attacks happened were not dense in any shape, actually, the outside of them. They weren't in dense areas. The Nariman house actually was in a densely, you know, alley type of place. And it's ironic about understanding the urban terrain and getting local information. When this attack happened, even the local police that patrol this area didn't know that the Nariman house was called the Nariman House, that it was a Jewish outreach summit. Um, the radio broadcast actually said they've hit the Nariman, uh, and there's a very popular place called the Nariman Point close to here, and that's where the police went. So it, it's a, a small lesson. Um, but this is the first, also the first site that is basically besieged. So the two terrorists enter the Nariman House by force and basically siege it, and then hold the 13 personnel inside the building hostage. And there's a kid and a, a lady who escape but seven people died there. The fourth site that was attacked was the, one of the five-star hotels. Two terrorists arrive. It's the Oberoi Trident. They actually enter through the Oberoi, which the two buildings, that picture right there, the big one on the right is the one that was really the one that was attacked. Uh, and then they begin a siege of that hotel. When you think about the Mumbai attacks, there's a famous movie called the, I forget the name of it, but um, it combines the stories, ironic, weirdly, of, both hotels if you watch that movie and it's a decent movie 30 killed in that attack and then lastly but probably most importantly to the overall scheme of the attack is the fifth site so around 2135 the two terrorists who left the leopo ca cafe walk less than a block it's a very short distance and enter the taj mahal through the back door which ironically was the ats told them to that they should probably lock and secure they walk through one of the back doors that enters into the swimming pool area and they just start killing almost exactly the same time two other terrorists walk through the front door into the main lobby of the, there's two buildings. If you look at the left is the iconic photo of the Taj Mahal. And to the right is the tower, the Taj Mahal tower that was built later onto the very old Taj Mahal. And they entered the main lobby through the tower and started killing people. And they basically besieged that. And that's kind of what people understand about the attack that it was, it was a siege, right? So this is the part about I don't know if I'd say it's using the city weaponizing a system, but 
because this attack was executed near simultaneously. So an amazing military plan, each one of those five sites were hit almost exactly the same time and five bombs are exploding that they had left in taxis about the same time or in a matter of 30 minutes. So I could see and anybody could see how that would cause the entire population, the security service to think the entire city was under attack just to instill crazy amount of chaos, not at one location, but across the entire city. If that was the intent, they absolutely achieved it. It was a distributed movement, as you saw. Every aspect of this plan had redundancies. So if one boat didn't make it, the other boat would. If each one of the terrorist attack sites would have been killed, caught, what you name it, the attack would still go on. So overwhelming the city. And that's what, when you think about a Mumbai-style attack, it's not just a terrorist attack. It's a overwhelming the city. And then can you deal with multiple attacks at the same time? which is a question that sometimes I'll ask of people like we asked the LA SWAT when we were there. There were over 1,300, basically 911 calls between 2100 to 02 that night. So about 4.5 calls per minute coming from each one of the sites. The one interesting aspect, which I think to me was a basically going off script, um, the two terrorists at the train station leave the train station and walk, will basically go on a rampage across the city. I think they're actually trying to make their way back to their insertion point. They go on a rampage and they actually walk two blocks down the road to the Kama Hospital, which had already gotten the word that a terrorist attack had happened and had gone into almost what we call active shooter protocol, but they had locked it down and locked all the doors, locked all the patients in their room, and, and they honestly saved thousands of people. These two guys that go on this rampage also, by some bad fluke of luck, the head of the ATS, the ATS chief, which heard about the attack, like multiple amounts of security forces heard about the attacks and went towards the sounds of the gun to respond. The ATS chief was in a car heading down a very high speed avenue approach, very wide boulevard. And the two terrorists who had not been able to get out of the hospital light up his car and by some fluke kill one of the main police persons in all of Mumbai. One of the lessons for me was the mistake of basically that fact that he died was broadcast at that moment across all the police radios and it had a huge moral impact or morale impact on the rest of the force. If this guy died, it's why we, we don't call people's names or the radio within our military. You use a battle roster number. The entire police force knew that this guy had died. Part of this rampage is also that one of those terrorists is captured. Like I said, he was supposed to die. And the only way he actually got captured was one of the, the Mumbai police grabbed his gun and took around to the chest while the other police tackled the terrorists. So the response, right? So chaos. By the end of the night, you have three sieges. That Jewish settlement house, which is that, that's the picture there of the, the basically the raid on that, the Oberoi Hotel and the Taj Mahal Hotel. Overall, this was the police services. They were unarmed, under-equipped, so they had plastic helmets. And if they had a vest, they had a frag vest that could stop frag, maybe, not bullets. Unled, disorganized police response. To be frank, they had emergency drills that they didn't follow. The police chief was out in the field, not at the command center, like the SOP said. Each one of the sites had massive amounts of people responding. Eventually, multiple 
groups that try to go in, but the terrorists giving them credit had a well-orchestrated plan for how to siege a building. All three groups immediately sought high ground. So even in two hotels, the Oberoi Hotel, it reminded me a lot of embassy suites. So it has you know, just one main lobby and then you look up and you can see all the rooms. The Taj Mahal is a labyrinth. I've never seen a hotel like that, a labyrinth of hidden hallways and just a maze of stuff. But the terrorists immediately got to high ground so that any force that entered, they faced somebody on high ground with AK-47 dropping multiple grenades on their heads. So what you see is that basically the, the forces back up and isolate the buildings, thinking they're going into a hostage rescue situation. Clearly, that's not what they were going into. These terrorists wanted not only to kill, they wanted international attention. So the longer they could besiege, the longer that the likelihood that they would get that attention. And that aspect of international media did play heavily and uniquely in this operation is that I told you that they were being guided by somebody in their ear who immediately after this hit international news, there were live broadcasts of each one of the sites to include phone calls from inside the, the hotel coming out to the news organizations and that being broadcast, which was just then fed to the terrorists inside so the handlers were saying, hey, there's a report of 80 people inside the Taj Mahal in the gold room or this restaurant. Go to that location and kill them. They were watching the news and social media feeding real-time intelligence to the terrorists on the ground. That was a unique aspect of the operation. So the actual overall response of the issue was that Mumbai didn't had a tier one level counter-terrorist force called the Black Hats or the National security guard commandos um, they're in delhi it took a federal permission to get them to respond to this attack and that took hours and hours and hours and then they had no way to get from delhi to mumbai they ended up taking a private airplane to get there and once they hit the actual airport in mumbai they had no way to get into the cities so they had to figure out trucks to get themselves in they don't arrive until zero five in the morning on the 27th to the airport they hit the first objective around zero six thirty they get there they go through all the plans uh, there's a failed attempt actually to get into the nariman house on the 28th but you see as they try to enter these highly i mean there's only two guys in the oberoi only two guys in the nariman house and only four in the entire taj mahal but as you look at clearing of a building. And we talked to them about this, even the, the most skilled level of operators, when you're trying to figure out if there's bad people in, in rooms, how many minutes does it take you to clear a room? And if there's 500 rooms in that hotel, how long does it take you to really call it clear? And oh, by the way, in the Taj Mahal, there was a massive fire because the, the terrorists hadn't set a fire and the handlers kept telling them, why haven't you started the fires? They wanted that iconic photo of the Taj Mahal burning, which is an iconic photo symbolizes basically India. And they got that. So not only were the responders militarily responding to terrorists, there was actually a, a massive fire happening with all the residents trapped in the room. So it is until the 28th of November that the Oberoi is cleared around 1500. The Nariman house is cleared around 2030. Everybody's dead, terrorists die. And then on the 29th of November, at zero eight in the morning, the Taj Mahal hotel is cleared 68 hours after the first shot is fired. So that's why they call it a 68 hour siege. 
for the lessons that I took from this operation, of course, it's proxy warfare. These were Pakistani ISI trained and backed terrorists that we know exactly the reasons that they did it. If it had gone successfully, like proxy warfare, there would have been no ties. But like I said, they intercepted the phone communication very quickly and they had the terrorists. So there was, there's no denying it, even though Pakistan still denied it. The clear lack of investment in Mumbai's security sector as a whole, to include the coastal security, none of the boats that were supposed to be on patrol that night were there, even though there were police that would hire fishing boats to go out and patrol because they didn't have boats or didn't have gas for their boats. I mean, the information is sharing, I think it was there. I, I just don't think the actioning of information was there. Uh, like I said, the command and control, the SOPs weren't being followed. Even for me personally, the, the layered security that you need in a, a complex and urban environment like this. So somebody who can rapidly respond, somebody with the right equipment. So multiple reports of, even at the first site, the Leopold Cafe police showing up, but not with weapons. So the throwing rocks at terrorists with AK-47 or in the train station, there, there's a famous point where a guy's throwing a plastic chair at the terrorists with an AK-47 because they don't have weapons. And if they do, most of the police hadn't fired a weapon in a year, if not longer, because there's just massive ammunition shortages. So just a complete lack of investment in it. I thought the remote controlled aspect of the privates was interesting. And like I said, the use of, which is a picture of that, the use of the media to give the attackers real-time intelligence. So with that, I know it's, that was a lot of information. It's a fascinating actual case study of a city and then violence in the city. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.